It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. On Commons People this week is another government U-turn coming. This £20 uplift has been uh, the difference between making ends meet or not for many, many families. When will it be safe to lift lockdown? But when you go into a hospital, this is very, very bad at the moment. And is there anything wrong with being woke? Uh, and, you know, insofar as um, nothing wrong with being, being woke, if, uh, but I've... But I've... Hello and welcome to Commons People. I'm Arj Singh and joining me this week is Paul War. Hi Arj. Hi Paul. Rachel Wearmouth's here. Hi Arj. Hi Rachel and we're delighted to welcome back the Conservative Chair of the Commons Education Committee, Rob Halfon. You can say hi there Rob. Oh, hi Arj <laughs> and all at our post. <laughs> hi Rob. I'm sure if I was supposed to be silent at that point so I do apologise. <laughs> Well, as Rob writes in an essay for the Children's Commissioner today, the COVID pandemic has thrown a new light on the inequalities faced by children and families in this country. The issue took centre stage in Westminster this week as six Tory MPs, including Rob, rebelled to back Labour calls to extend the £20 uplift in universal credit beyond the end of March. But the revolt was merely the tip of the iceberg, with Redwall Tory said to be raging about the government's reluctance to help their constituents and a full-blown cabinet row underway. Let's hear Keir Starmer explain why the £20 uplift is important. This is basic stuff. This £20 uplift has been uh, the difference between making ends meet or not for many, many families. We're at a food distribution centre here. Hear the stories of the families that are absolutely reliant on this. We're still in the middle of a pandemic, and the government wants to get rid of that uplift, which is vital to those families. It's the wrong thing to do. I think many... Tory MPs in their heart of heart know it's the wrong thing uh, to do. It's about priorities. Put families first. Keep this uplift. Uh, Paul, it seems like Rishi Sunak's rearguard action against extending this uplift might be failing. Is this another case of the government creating unnecessary grief for itself? Well, certainly Treasury resistance is crumbling, but it's crumbling because of a lot of pressure from Tory backbenchers, but also within the cabinet. Um, Therese Coffey has pushed back very hard and other cabinet ministers as well. Um, and other ministers further down the ranks, it's worth saying, have passed on the message that, look, why do we need another Marcus Rashford type story? It's a no brainer. The government knows it's going to have to do some kind of extension beyond um, uh, April when this um, uh, universal credit uplift ceases to, to continue. And the latest intel I've got is that they're really seriously looking at a sort of seven month um, extension that would take them into the autumn statement. And then at least that buys them uh, some political breathing space. But more importantly, it buys a lot of families some real breathing space um, over the summer when unemployment is expected to rise. I mean, I've talked to a few ministers this week and, and one minister said, look, the Treasury's own forecasting body, the OBR, is saying 
employment won't reach pre-COVID levels until 2024. You know, that's the central scenario. So this year alone, that we're going to see more people on universal credit. Um, and the people who are going on it are going on it for the first time, a lot of them in, in blue wall seats, but also other, other conservative seats. So for the first time, universal credit really is coming into focus. And the idea that you could somehow just give a one-off payment to compensate for that, which would not perhaps compensate people who come on it later in the year is seen as a non-starter. Uh, Rob, is a short extension to the uplift enough, given those figures from the OBR? I think any extension to the universal credit is a welcome. And I, I believe sometimes in politics, you have to cross each bridge as you come to them. And uh, just to mix my metaphors here, Rome is, wasn't built in a, in a day. And if they accept the principle of the uplift, hopefully it will mean it will be there for the longer term. But just to set out uh, the reasons why I supported the universal credit um, increase to be maintained is because this isn't a benefit a normal benefit universal credit the whole purpose of it was to uh, not just consolidate all the other benefits and make things simpler for recipients but also to get people out of the poverty trap so it was designed to help people into work um, and to make sure they didn't lose income if they did get jobs and so to me, it was paired, uh, if you look at it, it was paired down quite a bit during the austerity years um, under the Cameron uh, government for one reason or another. And I felt that the £20 redressed the balance. But of course, the second reason is that the government have had to make some very tough decisions, which I voted for in terms of COVID. But it's meant that literally millions of people have lost incomes, they've lost jobs, they've lost their livelihoods. So you can't say on the one hand that, yes, uh, we are, uh, are responsible for these things because of COVID, understandable, but at the same time, we're going to make you struggle uh, financially. So uh, I just felt it was uh, very important to send a signal um, to the government that this had to be maintained. And there was a, is a third reason as well um, that um, I believe that I want us as a government to lead the social justice agenda. And I don't want us just to do things because we are forced into it by um, Marcus Rashford or because of a big debate with Red Wall MPs. I want us to lead this debate and be on the front foot from the beginning, not have a big row and have to decide whether we're going to abstain uh, or vote against a motion. And if we led as a social justice government and made that our watchword, and Boris Johnson did mention the words, the two words social justice at the October party conference last year, the virtual conference, I think if we can find conservative ways to promote social justice and led it, we wouldn't get into some of the problems that the political problems or, um, or political elephant traps that we've sadly walked into. Do you think the government took their eye off the ball on this to a certain extent? I remember, because I think this started with a report a few months ago, which showed how red wall uh, seats would be impacted by uh, uh, ending the uplift. Do, do you think the government, I know they've got a lot on their plate, but do you think the government could have seen this coming a bit sooner? Well, government is firefighting, to, to be fair to them. they've To be fair to them, they have spent 280 billion so far trying to deal with the fallout of the coronavirus to help people who've been struggling whether it's the furlough scheme, grants to local councils or whatever it may be. Um, I think the government are firefighting day by day in terms of the health and the economy and issues like uh, 
free school meals, universal credit are uh, sometimes fall by the fall by the wayside. But politically, it was quite easy to see that this was going to come down the come down the track. And I'd spoken to my whips pre uh, you know quite a while ago uh, about this, and to other people in the in the party that this was going to be a hot potato. And I, I think that given that the Labour Party were going to do a a motion at any time it was you know anyone could see that was going to happen i didn't think it would be as soon as it was but i knew it was going to happen we should have been well prepared uh, rather than having arguments about whether or not the increase should go ahead and then saying to conservative mps for the most part please abstain from the motion because if we'd been on the front foot even if if we'd said well, actually, we're not going to give this uh, maintain the increase. But what we are going to do is these are our five measures to combat poverty and to help people on lower incomes. And this will involve X funds. We think this is a better way of doing it that we would have been on the front foot um, and not look like we're reacting to what the opposition party um, is throwing at us. I just wanted to ask you as well, Rob, before we move on to talk about schools, um, you backed a Labour motion on Monday and a lot of your colleagues would say, why, why are you backing a Labour kind of non-binding, meaningless opposition, opposition day motion? When, when does it stop? And also, are you, what, what do the whips say to you nowadays? You've, you're getting a bit of a reputation as a rebel. Well, I think that's unfair because I have um, only this parliament votes against the government twice in this parliament. I think I've stained on one vote. Um, but that was to protest about the fact that I wasn't going to be given a uh, a vote when originally they wouldn't even allow proxy votes. So I, just to make a point, and that was all it was. It was about committee chairmanships or something or other. I can't remember. So if you look at the rebellions of Conservative MPs, and I suspect you and 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 Rachel and Paul have studied this enormously. Um, they're doing it every day, and some of them get invited into Downing Street to have briefings about uh, Brexit or the coronavirus. And I don't expect any of that. I don't need it. I don't want it. So I've only rebelled twice. I did say that to my whip, who is a wonderful whip and very fair. Um, uh, I said that I've only. This is only the second time. I don't enjoy doing it. I find it very painful to do it. I. I, I regard myself as a loyal conservative. I've, I, I literally often sleep, in fact, the night before I got up at about 3.30, 4 o'clock in the morning trying to think about it. And the, the reason why I vote, decided to do it was because I want to send a strong signal to the government. So it wasn't just about the immediate issue of the universal credit, but I want us to be the social justice party. I want us to be on the front foot about these issues, to be passionate about them, to talk about them, to uh, make sure that we, as I say, we don't uh, fall into elephant traps sent by the opposition. And even if the universal credit thing had not been the right answer, if they had come up with a different solution, I would have been happy with that. Or if, if they had at least given a much stronger signal in the debate, that the uplift was going to be maintained because it looks like reading today's newspapers that the uplift will be maintained. So why go through all the agony? And if they had said that on, and I said that to um, my uh, party whip, I said that if they give a strong signal that it's very likely, then I will, you know, follow the government whip. But that didn't happen. And so um, 
uh, I, I, I'm not going to be voting for Labour motions uh, because these are going to come round quite a bit and it's their job to, they wake up in the morning thinking, how can we kill the Tories? That's their job. <laughs> and if we were in opposition, we would be doing exactly the, the same. And so uh, it's not my job to vote for Labour Party motions, but on one or two issues where it's fundamental and when it's to do with the cost of living and the struggles that my constituents face, which are enormous, the livelihoods uh, lost, the jobs lost because of COVID, um, just having less money, you know, hardworking people doing the right thing, but just not having enough to live on. Um, I just felt that I, I wanted to show the party that I wanted to be the party of social justice, but I needed to show my constituents. And the final thing I'll say about it is the problem with these votes is you can explain it all you like. You can do videos on it. You can have Paul War send the Huff Post to every single uh, the war room to every single constituent, and no one understands what an opposition vote is. <laughs> all they see is does Robert Halfon believe that we should uh, vote for universal credit, or does he not? And that is the issue. And on a few things, they will forgive me on. Um, so if I don't vote for, and I'm not, as I said, I won't be voting regularly for opposition motions because I think a case they do they do. I think the opposition have um, a lot of uh, political motions that they never explain where the money is going to come from, how they're going to pay for it. And they could say, we uh, we have a motion to make sure that everyone has a jar of honey every day. And I happen to love honey. And in Harlow, we have some <laughs> wonderful uh, honey makers. And, um, uh, but, uh, um, and then if the Tories voted against that, we'd be seen as evil Tories. <laughs> um, so if if and, and you would be because how could you not want to give people a jar of honey every day? <laughs> so I'm very wary of falling into the trap, the Labour trap, which is that it's the sort of what I call the jar of honey principle, or do you believe in jars of honey for everyone or not? Um, but nevertheless, once or twice, I do feel that I have to make a stand because it's everything I believe in in, in my politics. Uh, um, just quickly, uh, Rob, the previous time you rebelled was on free school meals. Do you think this is a very similar situation where, you know, you're like the canary in the coal mine for the Tory party. You're, you're, you're amongst a few rebels who rebel at first, but you know that a new turn's coming down the track and you're just trying to make sure the government learns about it quicker. And it's, it's, this looks like another version of that, doesn't it? Well, I, I what I do know is that there were had um, Tories not abstained, uh, you know, been allowed to abstain. I think it would have been a very different vote. And I had many messages from uh, Conservative MPs who were saying that they wanted the universal credit maintained, and it was from all wings of the party. It wasn't just a you know the One Nation group or whatever. Um, it was new MPs. It was diff different intakes and. Uh, I think we were glad that we were allowed to abstain. I think that's probably a, a good way forward. I hope it's used for future opposition day debates, because as I say, otherwise we fall into the um, we won't give people a jar of honey every day principle. And the government could have lost then, couldn't it? It could have been at least close to that vote, couldn't it? I think there would have been, whether they'd have lost, I, I, I doubt, but um, I think there would have been more MPs, definitely. There would be lots of abstentions. It's much... Uh, uh, abstentions are much more important if you're on a whip vote to vote for uh, um, and you saw there were quite a few abstentions on the free school meals vote and I also um, there would have been a few people who rebelled but I think there would have been more abstentions than actual votes for yeah. um, against the motion. Uh, I suppose you could argue against the jars of honey every day uh, 
as as being uh, not very good for your anti-obesity strategy, but let's move on. Anyway. Well, I just challenge you on that because uh, all the evidence shows that honey is incredibly good for you and boosts your immune system. And, and if we do get ill, um, um, if our immune system is strong, um, but there's nothing better. I have a spoonful of honey every morning. Every morning. Not a jar, though, perhaps not. I not a know. jar. No, not a jar, but a spoonful. And when I'm not on my diet, I put piles of it on bread and stuff. <laughs> I am a fan of honey, I have to say. But uh, Rachel, attention is now turning to when schools may be able to reopen. The government had been targeting uh, February half term as the, the time where, it, where they might be able to open. What's the latest? Well, well Boris Johnson has said that um, most pupils might have to continue remote learning um, until after... Um, the mid-February half-term break and Gavin Williamson was doing the uh, media round this morning he said he would certainly hope that um, schools would be back before Easter but he also at the same time said that he committed to giving schools two-week notice um, so that would you know Easter half-term is April 1st so that would mean you know two weeks before that would put them into half-term so it would need to be some time before mid-March before schools would find out what's going to happen but the problem that they might have is that all the data is going in the wrong direction at the minute it seems the um, Imperial College London React survey this morning said that R is still above one in, across the country and there's no evidence of decline and there are worrying suggestions of a recent uptick in infections but then we've got the NHS test and trace statistics which would suggest that case numbers are falling so and they kind of seem to be feeling their way forward. But I did have an interesting conversation with a senior conservative this week who said that um, to go into all of the mistakes that the um, Department for Education seems to be making at the minute. And they said that that they wanted to see a full clean out of all the ministers within um, within the Department for Education and not just Gavin Williamson. And they, they picked out um, Nick Gibb in particular as, as having sort of a an increasingly difficult relationship with school leaders um, and I've just wondered what Rob's thoughts on that were. Well I've made it my business not to get involved with the personalities and I don't know what goes on in the department with Nick and school leaders. I, I do think uh, Nick should be credited for doing enormous work on phonetics and, and literacy uh, which was a real problem and I think that uh, he's not credited for that. Clearly things have gone wrong in the department one thing after another um, but uh, I think uh, it's better for me to focus on the policies rather than uh, than the individuals. And today, as I do this podcast with you, they're doing something very exciting, which is the FE and Skills White Paper, something I've championed for a long time. And I, I, I think it's very good. I think it's going to help address our skills needs. I think it's going to help the disadvantaged climb up that skills ladder. And it's also going to mean that qualifications are much more employer led. But even without all that, it's a massive symbolic change. You know, when does a Conservative government issue a massive skills white paper? You know, and previously people would just be talking about universities and Oxbridge and Tom Brown school days. We are uh, promoting skills big time. And from what I understand that from internal, from what ministers tell me or um, the internal meetings in, in number 10 and cabinet committee meetings are filled with discussions about skills and that the prime minister believes that the lifetime skills guarantee is something really important as a major plank of what he is trying to do in terms of levelling up, levelling up. And for all the things that I've criticised the government on, I'm genuinely excited about this and the direction of travel. And uh, 
I'm about to do the statement. I mean, it'll be very interesting to hear what the Secretary of State has, says, but for all the things that have gone wrong, and I, as you know, I pointed them out before, so I'm not some kind of group government groupie, but um, the Secretary of State, I think, is one of the few cabinet ministers who've ever been to an FE college. And I think that is fundamental. Um, and I, 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 I doubt that we would have had this kind of white paper if, Ga if Gavin Williamson hadn't had such a passion for further education and skills. Um, and the government recognising that in all the seats, and not just red wall, but a white uh, sort of a white van man and woman blue collar whatever you want to call it um that vocational education and skills is something that uh, the public really warm to i think and i know just how much you've campaigned on that issue and how much you it must have been frustrated perhaps this morning that um, gavin, gavin williamson just was not asked about it. it it was all focusing on his future as a minister on the mistakes he's made it must be particularly frustrating that it, now it's just because of everything that has happened with the education secretary that he's now kind of struggling to get that message across. It was very depressing because I watched the Piers Morgan interview, I listened to the Today programme and others, and um, uh, it was all about him as an individual, not what the white paper is about. And it's sad, actually, because the media is so biased against vocational education and skills, with exception, of course. And... Um, but, for example, we did a report on adult learning and lifelong learning, our committee. Now, when we do other reports, you get a lot more coverage. We still got good media coverage, but relatively in comparison, um, if I'd written a report, if we, if our committee had done a report on universities, it would have probably got a lot more. And that's because everyone in the media has been to university, including myself, by the way, as an MP. Um, the House of Lords is stuffed with university, uh, former university people, the House of Commons is. And this is what I, why I think this white paper, they didn't get as much coverage as I would have liked, and hopefully we'll get more with the statement later. Um, if it changes that dynamic, that will be the most successful thing that it does, that uh, making skills and uh, further education apprenticeships a central, not just an additional part, but a central part of our education system, um, it, will be, it will have made a difference. Schools will, of course, be the first thing to reopen once lockdown ends, but the debate has started around how many people and which people need to be vaccinated for wider restrictions to be lifted. Former Brexit Minister Steve Baker last week went as far as threatening Boris Johnson's leadership unless he outlines a plan to open up, arguing that keeping the lockdown in place until late spring would be a disaster. Chief Scientific Advisor Sir Patrick Vallance was asked the question of how many people need to be vaccinated for lockdown to end this week. Let's listen. In terms of the numbers of people that would need vaccination, it's worth just understanding what the vaccines will do. So the first thing the vaccines will do is protect those people who've had the vaccine from severe illness and reduce the chance of dying from the disease. So it's an individual protection. We know second... If I can just that we know much less about the ability of the vaccine to stop transmission. We think it will stop transmission, but we don't know by how much yet. And you'll need very, very high levels of population coverage, 70% or more, in order to get some degree of immunity across the whole population. Uh, Paul, Valence said you need to vaccinate 70% of the population to get immunity, a, a kind of cross-population immunity. Do you think that's what the government's aiming for in terms of that being the moment when restrictions might be lifted? 
Well, I mean, in a way, Fallon's was just stating a fact, which is, you know, when you get that kind of level of immunity, then it makes it much easier to protect people who can't get a jab, for example, from from catching the disease. So some people for for various health conditions can't uh, get vaccinations. And like all vaccinations, whether it's MMR or whatever or flu, it, it you know, there's a certain level of vaccination that's needed for a, a sense of real sense of herd immunity, not not the sense of herd immunity that some lockdown skeptics use. Um, so the big question, though, the overwhelming impression I get from from the government is actually they are following Witty's advice, which is walking backwards slowly out of restrictions. It's going to take time. It's going to mean that schools almost certainly will will have a, a sort of gradual reopening, um, maybe before Easter, but certainly after it. Uh, and that's Easter seems the earliest period when. The rest of us are going to be affected and business it may well be you know it may well be as as late as june you know that the business can get back to norm, some kind of normality but i think that it's certainly the case that number 10 know that they want this to be the last national lockdown They're not and, and if you make it long enough and you follow everything that witty says then it could be the last one what they don't want is to finish it too soon as valence was hinting earlier this week uh, and then have to do another one yeah, Rob, do you have some sympathy with Baker and the COVID recovery group who argue that, well, once you vaccinate the top four priority groups by mid-February, you've eliminated 88% of deaths. So shouldn't you open up then? I, I just don't know the answer to that because I've always said to me, when they ask me this question, I'm not an epidemiologist. I can't even say the word, let alone know that I'm not one. And I don't understand the science and because I don't understand the science, I try and read as much as possible in the papers and listen to them, what they say. I think one has to take advice of the chief uh, medical officer, um, because what I don't want to happen is what happened in the first lockdown is that we lifted restrictions. I thought, oh, great, this is all over, not completely over, but, you know, this is. And then, hey, presto, we're back in second lockdown, third lockdown. And so when we do it this time, I want to want it to be. Uh, the end of it but what I would say is I do think that they should do everything possible to open the schools um, and even if other areas are restricted in our society I think the damage we're doing to children every day that schools are open is is potentially horrific we're damaging their mental health we're damaging their educational attainment we're damaging their well-being they're facing safeguarding hazards in terms of joining county line gangs or exposed to online harms and you can argue about the laptop scheme you can have a million laptops but you've got to get the pupils to open the laptops you need parental support and if the parents are working that's not always easy and of course there needs to be better remote learning and better laptops absolutely but i think the only way we're going to get our kids learning again is to have our schools open and so as the royal society pediatrician said to my committee um, only this week it may be that you have restrictions in other parts of society in our economy but you have the schools open and this this cannot happen in my view soon uh, soon enough does, does it have to happen after february half term well i very much hope so because that's what the government said they said that um february half term and uh i worry what's going to happen that long after the coronavirus has gone we're going to have a mental health epidemic if we're not careful alongside educational attainment eating disorders amongst young people because of uh, according to the Royal Society of Pediatricians um, has gone up by uh, partly due to school closures and social isolation have gone up by 400 percent 
I mean, that is that's unbelievable. And there's a lot more problems coming down the track. And we're going to have to guarantee mental health counsellors in all schools. So, yes, the government invested hundreds of millions of more, but we've got to make that money work. And it may be that more funding is needed. There's going to have to be mental health practitioners for teachers as well, for parents and for kids proper mental health counsellors in all schools that um not just because at the moment it's pretty spare and, and and some schools have it some some don't as a postcode lottery uh, we're going to have the rocket boost the catch-up program so that the and maybe have kids learn on weekends you might have to pay teachers more use the catch-up money to fund the on the tutors uh, uh the tutor groups and uh, as i say we're gonna have to deal with some of the safeguarding hazards hazards that are going to be with us for quite a while well, yes, and that's why I'm so passionate about trying to get the schools open and also why I support vaccinating teachers and yeah. support staff, uh, teachers and support staff after the clinically vulnerable and the elderly have been vaccinated, because if you if it means the schools can open sooner, it is a no brainer. Um, if I'm not saying I favour one group of workers over another, because I recognise the argument like supermarket workers every day being in during the coronavirus, all the lockdowns looking after us delivery workers i get it and it's very difficult but if we regard as a country the most important thing is not to destroy the chances of our younger generation we have to get our schools open and that's why i would favor vaccinate the teaching support staff being moved up the list for vaccinations yeah absolutely uh, rachel just quickly um where are labor on opening up their role could be pivotal in, in what happens case time has been quite pro lockdown over the last couple of months do you think they've got an opportunity to set the agenda here somehow? Um, to, to some degree, I think um, it's worth underlining that lockdown is very popular with the, with, with the public. Um, and he hasn't actually set out any kind of plan as to how Labour would unlock. But when he has called for a national, Keir Starmer, I should say, has called for a national plan from Boris Johnson, which we've yet to yet to see but um he's kind of not not said specifically how he how long he wants lockdown to end but he's kind of strongly pro a very hard lockdown you know he's given um he suggested there should be better rules around face masks for example um and he's also said that um you know the more we delay the longer it will be and he's kind of setting up for an argument that perhaps Boris Johnson did delay in locking down to some degree which would suggest that he thinks it's going to last quite a while. Right, it's time for the quiz. And hopefully for one final time, this week's is all about Donald Trump. Uh, if, you answer, if you know the answer, just shout it. Um, first question, fill in the missing word from the following infamous Donald Trump tweet. Despite the negative press... Coffefe. Yeah, well done, Rachel. <laughs> Coffefe. Yes, oh, very good. Indeed. Point for Rachel. Um, question number two. How long did White House Communications Director Anthony Scaramucci, also known as the Mooch, last in post? God. A week? Was it two weeks? Six days? Was it six days or? Uh, it was 11 days. 11 uh, days. I don't, I don't, 11, yeah. So I don't think any of you get the points there. <laughs> <laughs> and okay final question which non-us territory did trump once briefly consider buying oh was that greenland no yes yes it was greenland well done paul uh trump said it was not number one on the burner but that any purchase would be essentially a large real estate deal <laughs> um, rob just before we go um we've had some interesting words from the prime minister this week about joe biden and how woke or not joe biden might be 
And the Prime Minister said there's nothing wrong with wokeness. What, what do you think of that? Well, I'm not, I, I don't like all this woke stuff, but uh, if I could say something about, I think Joe Biden, uh, I think three things I would say about him. I think Paul asked me about Joe Biden some months before the election. I said I wanted him to... Uh, to be elected but uh, first thing is that i hope to god that it means an end to the nastiness and aggression of american politics i just i just couldn't stand it so removed from my politics the second thing is that um i think he must as a president build links uh, and and unify with blue collar voters and they are different from the loons and the QAnon and the far right that uh, sadly trump um sometimes uh, spent too much time with um, they are the kind of voters you see in a, a states like Ohio who voted for Trump and uh, in other, other states. And he's got to build links with them. And he didn't say much in his speech about those uh, blue collar white van type uh, workers uh, at all. And the third thing is, I hope that the best thing that happens with Trump gone and Biden being elected is that the Republican Party reforms and chooses a post Reagan Reagan. Um, somebody who is optimistic and sunny and can develop a new kind of Republican conservatism uh, for the next generation. Because if they don't, they will never get in again. Um, because uh, whilst Trump stuff is popular, it's popular. It's like Corbyn. It's it's popular amongst a very core group of people and it's only going to last for so long. And I, I predict that just as Corbyn faded out from having been the Glastonbury, you know, hero, I think the same thing is going to happen to Trump, providing... Republicans choose somebody charismatic and, uh, with, uh, as I say, who can develop a new kind of conservatism. Good stuff. Thanks, Rob. Unfortunately, that's all we have time for this week. Thank you to my guests for joining me and make sure you subscribe to Commons People on all the usual channels and please be sure to leave a review and get your daily dose of what's happening in Westminster by subscribing to the Warzone newsletter at bit.ly forward slash the hyphen war hyphen zone. Well, in a week of House of Commons Zoom problems, we'll just leave you with one of the worst, as Scott Mann attempted to ask a question. Scott, 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 sorry, um, you sound like a Dalek, uh, and I don't mean that unkindly. Um, there is clearly a communications uh, problem. Can we switch to the next one? And then we'll try and get you back. <laughs>